0: That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there.
1: It's Friday, July the 14th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics Podcast wrap of the week from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Pat Leahy has struggled in through the wind and rain to be here with us today. Harry McGee is wisely dialing in. Pat, um, unsettled weather. Is unsettled uh, a synonym for Shite. terrible, appalling? Yes, Abominable. Shite, but might change. Unsettled weather for the foreseeable future, although I must say, looking at the climate in Southern Europe at the moment, um, we should maybe count our blessings. Uh, We're looking at the political events of the week, and yet again, the RTE story, Pat, seems to sort of flood the zone. Um, and everything else seemed to be secondary. I notice um, Stephen Collins in today's Irish Times suggesting that this has been a bit of a gift to the government parties.
0: Oh, there's no question that people in government are uh, are enjoying it somewhat. Um, I've I've spoken to several people in government over the last couple of weeks who um, who can't suppress their uh, their enjoyment of it, or the evidence that they're uh, they're enjoying it. Though I think they are, like maybe the rest of us. Getting a little fed up of it now. We've had three weeks of it. My guess is that uh, that things will abate somewhat now. There aren't any committee meetings at this point scheduled for next week. The internal inquiries conducted both by RTE and by outside bodies will go about their work. I would be surprised if we are writing five six, even five so far this week, five front page stories in a row about uh, uh, about RTE next week. and um, I'm delighted I, to hear
1: that because that's me off the hook for writing endless Whither, Ryan Doberty and Whither RTE stories. And me perhaps
0: off the hook for actually writing those front page stories, although <laughs> I'm not sure I'm not sure we'll escape uh, totally from it. I think though that on that point, maybe we'll come on to talk about this in a bit more detail uh, later on, but... There's also a view in government, particularly amongst those parts of government that are likely to be charged with making decisions about these kind of things, is that while they're certainly enjoying Ortiz's discomfiture, they're wondering, will he or won't he, about Tuberty like everybody else, but they're also conscious that they will shortly be asked to provide more money for RTE. Now, in a way, that was coming anyway. RTE got 15 million euros in the budget uh, last year, and ask even had this all this not happened, and ask for more money direct. This is aside from license fee uh, money, and aside for uh, an ask for more direct subvention was on the way from RTE as part of the budgetary process that is now beginning to kick off within within government uh, departments, and the political difficulty of supplying that extra money, even though, you it's, know, it's 15 million It's pre, pretty is,
1: tiny by, by the overall yeah, standards of
0: it, it, it is. But, you know, one backbencher was making the case to me that, like, there are people all over the country and groups and causes all over the country that are looking for money from government. And most of those are told that they can't have it or they can't have as much as they want. Now, if you are at the time telling some, and the the example he gave to me was, you know, some community hall or whatever, if they're not getting the 50, 50,000 that they're looking for, but you're bunging 20 million, 30 million into RTE to pay top stars, top dollar, then that suddenly, the politics of that then begin to leak back towards the government. And the great thing about this scandal from the government's point of view is that they are politically insulated from it. But once it comes to questions of money, it starts leaking back towards them, and that they do not relish.
1: Harry, should they be politically insulated from it? I mean, I, you know, I have some sympathy for O.T.'s argument that it has been badly treated by successive governments, including this one, in terms of ignoring what are real problems and problems that can only be solved uh, by a government. Now, you can you can argue the toss on, on on how valid some or other of those are, but there's there's no... There's no doubt that this government and its predecessors' approach has been one of masterly inaction when it comes to RTE. And that's one of the factors that led to the sort of increasing commercial pressures that arguably gave rise to this behaviour.
2: Thank you very much indeed for that, Hugh. That was a question and answer all encapsulated into the one contribution. I remember uh, back uh, about a decade ago, 2011, 2012, uh, Pat Rabbit, when he was Minister for Communications, actually commissioned a uh, study to uh, see if the RTE licence could be replaced by a broadcasting fee, which would be collected by the revenue commissioners. Now, he was minded originally to go uh, and proceed with that, Uh, but then the water charges controversy intervened and the perception uh, amongst those in government was that it would be perceived by the public as another tax and that it would be politically uh, uh, too uh, dangerous a gambit uh, to pursue uh, that it would be unpalatable with the public. Of course, all taxes are unpalatable with the public, uh, but some you can actually push through, and there, the feeling was that they couldn't push through uh, with that. And that's the difficulty with the broadcasting fee, a broadcasting fee that will be collected by, say, revenue, uh, which is a high degree of efficiency uh, when it comes to collecting a revenue on behalf of the uh, state uh, uh, does not go down well with the uh, public, so uh, I think any politician who will be proposing any change in the license fee will have that at the forefront of their minds.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's another. It's a thing which I think we we don't say enough when we discuss this part in other media sources, other than RTE, uh, or indeed some presenters who might uh, share an agent with who figures largely in this uh, in this particular debate, which is that you know we are competitors of RTE, so when we talk about how it you know, comports itself commercially you know we should flag the fact that it, we are commercial competitors of it in some regard having said that one of the things that occurs to me is that all of us in the world of newspapers, and probably broadcast media as well, have had to cope with a, with a, an environment over the last 10 or 15 years where our traditional business model is being hollowed out. You know, newspapers sell probably half as many copies as they did 15 years ago. Advertising is going downhill for all media because it's migrating to the, the social media platforms and all the rest of it. And arguably, it's public service broadcasting, even if the licence fee has been stuck at the same rate for 10 years, it's still getting the same amount of money which we don't get out of selling newspapers yeah. so my sympathy is is somewhat curtailed by those by those realities
0: yeah and yes of course we've got we've got skin in uh, in the game we are direct competitors not obviously in the broadcast uh, sphere but we are direct competitors in the online sphere i mean this podcast i guess has RTE... Uh, competitors, our online offering. We we produce RTE is, I guess, in receipt of public funds to produce its online uh, offering. There's an obvious uh, there's an obvious imbalance there, but also I suppose while we can acknowledge that we have skin in the game, you know, we can also give RTE the benefit of our uh, of our experience in dealing with a rapidly changing. Uh, a rapidly changing media uh, environment. And we have changed. I mean, the way we work as journalists and the way the Irish Times works has been transformed completely in the last 20 years uh, or so, Uh, even less. I mean, you know, you're, you're probably down to like three long lunches a week now Hugh you know and, and i have to pay for one of them uh, myself yeah. <laughs> but uh, but you know the the, the way we work uh, the way we work has completely transformed itself we are you know individual journalists I suspect, a lot more productive than they were you know 20 uh, 30 years ago and um and you know i sometimes feel that rte's answer and there have been you know significant costs taken out of rte i acknowledge that but sometimes you know uh, you get the sense from RTE that it is sitting sitting back and waiting for the government to give it money to solve all these problems. You know, I mean, you know, you, we all know the sort of cost cutting that has gone on in, uh, in 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 newspapers, and I suspect, although personally I take no relish from it, but I suspect that something similar may be on the cards for uh, for RTE, uh, especially if their commercial and license fee revenue suffers a slump, as many people seem to think it will. But even absent that, and Kevin Backhurst this week said that, you know, as far as they can tell, commercial revenue has not slumped yet. Licence fee income is roughly the same level as it was this time uh, last year. But, you know, even if that doesn't happen, then, you know, RTE is going to have to, I think, trim its sales uh, a little bit in terms of what it does. And the argument that... Everything that it does is public service broadcasting is one I don't think it will get away with
1: anymore. Mm, That's a big debate, which I look forward to having. Maybe maybe not not in this wrap. Although, just a last thought on this. Harry, just in in relation to to what Pat says, this I mean, surely one of the things that this whole story has exposed is legitimate questions about how well RTE does its business, runs its business, runs things like voluntary redundancy packages, uh, how well the accounts are observed, uh, what the auditing standards are, what the government standards are. All those kinds of criticisms, which have been quite unfocused in the past, but have always suggested that RTE could, you know, could pull its socks up. I suppose.
2: For sure. I mean, I've almost lost count of the number of inquiries that have been commissioned into RTE in the past week uh, between the uh, forensic accountants, uh, between uh, further dives into the uh, two agreements with uh, Ryan Tuberty, and now a new investigation, internal investigation, uh, looking at these two packages for people who are exiting RTE, uh, one from 2017 and one from 2019. And it was kind of astounding Uh, to hear the Interim Deputy Director-General of RTE uh, say to the committee that he wasn't aware uh, that the former financial controller of RTE, uh, Breda O'Keefe, had benefited from one of these exit uh, packages uh, when uh, it was abundantly clear uh, that the Executive Board of RTE uh, should have been fully aware and had received the paperwork in relation uh, to that. And, I mean, the, the difficulty with RTE... from a a global sense, is that it will be approaching the government in the autumn looking for more money in order to uh, survive. At the same time, there are major issues in relation to how the broadcaster is run, in relation to governance and in relation to uh, how it it deals uh, with uh, its uh, staff. I mean, the last three weeks have been lots of kind of, Dortmund Lundgren, Dortmund Lehi, there's been kind of bickering about who said what and when. And this dispute between Ryan Tuberty and Noel Kelly on the one hand, North team management on the other, about, about uh, you know, the details. And was it secret? Was it not a secret? Uh, did they know that Reynolds wa- weren't sponsoring it in year two, and year three, et cetera? But none of that, that's a kind of a bit of a sideshow. I mean, the, 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 when you, when you, when you uh, uh, drill this down to its core elements, Hugh, the, 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 this was a device that RTE used in order to pay its main star extra money and, and not declare it. I mean, whatever about the, the row over year two and year three about Reynolds' involvement, the fact of the matter is in it, that Reynolds didn't pay a bob even from year one. In year one, Reynolds paid €75,000, but they got it all back yeah. by means of a credit note. So RTE actually paid the €75,000 in year one, year two and year three. So they were all in it. You know, they're all in it. This was a device to, to evade uh, responsibility when it came to publicly admitting the, the level of salary that RTE's biggest star was getting. And that, that, at the end of the day, is the knob of the issue. And such practice is not appropriate or acceptable, especially when they're dealing with taxpayers' money. So these are the big fundamental problems that RTE will have to grasp with uh, over the next couple of months, if it is, to get uh, if to reassure the public and the government that it is fit for purpose that its governance is in order that its top level team is in order and that it's dealing it, that its dealings with its staff its many staff uh, are appropriate at all times and that's something that Kevin Backhurst will have to do and get right between now and September or October
1: as part of that past a last question to you on this i mean symbolically a part of that is whether Brian Tubbity gets to keep what he described in the committee as the job that he loves. Now, I would argue, actually, it's not a job because it's a contract of service with a company called Tuttle Productions, I believe it's called, of which he is the director. And then he can choose or not choose to pay a salary or dividends to himself out out of that company. And I I don't just say that for semantic reasons, but because it actually goes to the heart of some of the arguments that we're having at the moment. Uh, Kevin Backhurst seems to be keeping his options very open on that question, but it's it's probably the question that the man in the street or the woman in the street is asking, isn't it? You know, they don't really care that much about some middle manager who they've never heard of getting into trouble.
0: Yeah, look, and that's the question of that's the question of this week, hasn't it been? You know, it's been all centered on Ryan Tubberty. And it seems to me that over the what, three well, or she was involved in four committee meetings, three of them directly concerned with Ryan Tuberty's remuneration arrangements, and it seems to me that the relations between, over the course of this week, since we spoke last about this, over the course of this week, relations have soured even further between RTE and Ryan Toberty. He went in, Agent Noel Kelly went in, the two committee meetings on Tuesday with a very, you know, very forthright, very aggressive attack on RTE. There's no two ways about it. That's they accused RTE of telling lies uh, about the uh, about the whole business. RTE hit back yesterday uh, in the committee meeting when their executives, including Kevin Backhurst, uh, went in. And so I think the week finishes. And Kevin Backhurst has been, he, every time he's been asked about this, and he's probably been asked this question more than any other about Ryan Tubridy's future. He has been kind of frank, but very non-committal. So he said, you know, yes, we'll have to decide on that soon, to be fair to everybody, including Ryan. I'll talk to people uh, in RTE and we'll make a decision uh, on it. So we're no nearer knowing what that decision would be. But I think on balance over the course of this week, I think this week has made his return to RTE look less likely than it was Does that like matter? a week ago. Does matter? It matters for him, I guess. Does it matter hugely to RTE? I think it's a very big decision for Kevin Backhurst because on the one hand, if he decides that Ryan Tuberty is not coming back, to RTE, It's a very visible sign of change. The most visible sign possible, I guess, of change in RTE. And Kevin Backhurst, in his lengthy statement that he made to RTE staff, which was emailed out at 7am on Monday morning, his first official day uh, in the job, everybody f- kind of focused on the fact that the executive team were leaving and his uh, regrets. Uh, leaving their posts and you know and his regret and his, for what had happened and his appreciation of the anger in RT and all that but there was also a line in that that people didn't uh, really pick up on and that was that he said that the culture in RT had to change from top to bottom not just at the top which is where everybody's focus is but he was talking about culture change throughout the whole of the organisation and a very visible sign of that would be Ryan Tupperly's departure on the other hand if he does go Then,
1: you know, he is, he's a very big star. He's a really, very though, big. He's name not the to late, go, late show it. presenter anymore. He presents really a not hugely significant one hour long radio program uh, in the in the nine o'clock slot. Is that is it really such a big deal? I don't mean to. I don't want anybody to lose their job. Let me say that that is not. But I'm just talking about what the political resonance or relevance of that would be at this point. Surely the whole idea of having these contracts, as opposed to having people on staff, is to allow the publisher or the broadcaster to move them around or to bring those contracts to an end when it deems that the right time.
0: Yes, I still think it would be a very big move to get rid of the guy who is the station's biggest star. Now, partly because the station created him into his biggest star. Fine, but uh, and there's still a lot of... I mean, never mind what I think, but just talking to politicians throughout the week about this at Leinster House... And politicians, whatever you may say about them, have their ear to the ground. And what they are saying to me is that, you know, yes, there is an awful lot of anger amongst ordinary people about what happened at Orti, But there is also a lot of affection, you know, and regard for Ryan Tuberty uh, around, uh, around the country. He's a very popular guy and he's very good at... He's very good at being Ryan Tuberty, you know, and uh, and, and people people like him. He's a very likable guy, and for RTE to to shoot him, I think would be they are they you know and an RTE less Tuberty is probably a lesser. A lesser package for many people, I think.
2: I'm very good at being Harry McGee as well, but um, I, I, I would agree. <laughs> I, 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 but <laughs> Which I, is an achievement
0: things- given the preponderance of impersonators <laughs> around, you know.
2: <laughs> um, what, what, one of the things um, that, that struck me is, I mean, the difficulty isn't Ryan Tuberty qua Ryan Tuberty, the broadcaster. I mean, the difficulty is in relation to Ryan Tuberty, the guy earning whatever five hundred thousand euro per annum, and it's the 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 money side of it is is. A problem. I mean, the broadcasting side isn't uh, a problem and he is a very big star. And I think Pat is right uh, the, about his cachet with uh, uh, the public and uh, politicians who are a very good filter for public sentiment uh, are very cognizant of that. It seemed to me, just listening to the evidence this week, especially Kevin, what Kevin Backhurst had to say to the Public Accounts Committee yesterday, That he wasn't quite as non-committal yesterday as he had been in previous interviews, or uh, in a statement uh, earlier uh, this week. He wasn't giving any guarantees that Ryan Tuberty was coming back, but to me, he seemed to be indicating in some way that there could be a pathway back for Ryan Tuberty. He made a reference to perhaps the 150 grand being uh, returned to RTE being uh, a big help. Of course, he said that Ryan Tuberty is not being paid at the moment, uh, which puts it on the negative side. Uh, But he also talked about kind of a process and conversations and then those conversations possibly involving Ryan Tuberty. So that, to me, indicated a person who was saying there might be a pathway, but certainly a person who hasn't made up uh, his mind at all uh, that there is no future for Ryan Tuberty in RTE. Of course, you can't read too much into any of these things because I think that decision hasn't been made as yet. And perhaps he hasn't begun to broach the thinking that's involved in making that decision. But to me, there did seem to be a slight softening in terms of attitude and approach yesterday to
1: my to my eyes indeed least. and he's doing what any savvy politically astute manager would do in the circumstances he's letting the temperature come down a little bit and just let everybody just worry about something else for a while and then come to whatever decision he and his he and his assistants it still does seem to me and again I don't want to lose anybody their job but surely one of the big problems here was Orti was far too terrified of losing these stars which it had created itself in the first place so it seems to me there might be some symbolic value in in that alongside the other elements which which you guys have both suggested. Um, I should say, by the way, that um, uh, before we take a break, that the the lengthy lunches, which which Pat referred to earlier, um, you know, sometimes I do have to pay for them myself, and it'd be very difficult to do that were it not for the support of um, of of various of time subscribers. I, you know, sometimes I'll bring in a curling, rather decrepit remnant from the uh, evening before's dinner to reheat in the microwave. But I have been known to splash I out. That was a reference to one of the staff. Uh, I been known to I have been known to splash out on a €3.75 falafel wrap from around the corner, you know, and, you know, money for that doesn't grow on trees. So I, for one... This is a personal appeal here, Pat. I'm always extremely grateful to anybody who signs up. And I've, I've, we've received a few emails over the last few weeks from people who've explicitly said they uh, signed up to subscribe to the Irish Times as a result of these pleas, which uh, which are <laughs> increasingly I desperate, in- Increasingly desperate indeed, you know, because, uh, you know, I'm feeling kind of peckish right now. But in order to do that, you will need to go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe where there's a range of enticing offers available, both digital and print. We'll be back after this. And you're very welcome back. We're staying on the theme of bad value for money for the state, Harry. The National Children's Hospital is arguably the worst value in the history of the state. Oh God, it's a basket case. How long
2: ago is it since, um, since Leo Varadkar said that it would be finished by 2016 unless a meteorite lands on Earth? And like six or seven years later, uh, we're still uh, without a completion date. They're talking about March of next year, May of next year. We're talking about the bill creeping above €2 billion. Euro. I think there are 800 rooms in the hospital only uh, 25 of which have been fully fitted out. And I think there's a snag list associated with them. We also seem to have a complete breakdown in relationship between the contractors, BAM, and the uh, the National Paediatric Board, which is developing the, the hospital. Uh, the relationship seems to be poisonous, and I'm not being over the top in describing it from everything that, that we have read. So it's like, how many capital projects, how many big projects like this, during the course of our journalistic careers, have we seen that it started off full of hope and then suddenly they have been beset by delays, by by escalating costs. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I, the, the first one I can remember reporting about was Lewis, uh, which uh, was first promised, I think, back as far back as perhaps the early uh, uh, 1980s and, and didn't see the light of day for 15 years and, and cost a multiple of what uh, it, it, they proposed. And we're seeing the same with our metro service. I mean, I, I, I think I will be buried further underground uh, uh, by the time the metro f- further f- finally sees the light of, of days. I mean, they, they promised the metro uh, by 2010. I think it's going to be 2035 or 2040, at least by the time that metro is fully functioning. And the cost for that is just going to be, you know, extraordinary. I can't even begin to imagine what the cost will be. So, so sadly, uh, we are really bad at managing big public projects and the National Children's Hospital is a textbook example of that.
1: Is there an element here at all, Pat, of the fact that the state has been flushed with money for the last couple of years and that therefore maybe it isn't keeping as close an eye on it or does it, does it run deeper than that?
0: Yeah, I look, maybe that's, uh, that, that, that's a part of it. Um, but I think the experience of the Children's Hospital is a real warning sign. Uh, to the to the uh to this government and and future governments because over the next 10 years you know we are going to have to build an awful lot of things to uh, cater for an expanding uh population not just those big public transport yeah uh, examples that harry has instanced but also you know things you know to prepare for you know climate mitigation flood defences things like that that will become increasingly necessary irrespective of you know what climate action takes place from now on there is already it seems and we see this with the extraordinary temperatures in Europe at the moment there's a whole lot of climate change to come that is already baked in to the system and you know that will require big engineering projects you know and uh, you know things like we heard it again this week about big offshore wind uh, uh, wind projects, and that's on top of all the, you know, the schools and the next, the new national maternity hospital, and all these things that have yet to be built. And
1: do you so, think our state is particularly bad at it? Because, you know, we do hear horror stories from other countries. The the Germans, you know, noted for uh, their efficiency. The airport, yeah, I
0: know. They're clearly very bad at building children's hospitals. So you would think that there must be some sort of a process in government to decide exactly what went wrong with that project and how come it ended up costing so much before we embark on another open-ended project to build a very big uh, new national maternity hospital. But it is not impossible for the state to get on top of these things. There was a time when roads projects all ended up costing, you know, tens of millions more than had been budgeted for. But actually the state learned how to do roads projects. And now there is a set price. It's about, I think it's Ten million. It basically, wherever you build a road, it costs ten million a kilometre. That's it. You know, that's it. That's what all the road roads projects cost. It cost ten million uh, uh, per per kilometre. And uh, so the state is. And I know there's a lot of work has been done on aspects of this in the Department of Public Expenditure. Um, and that is the example. Uh, when I've I've queried this, this, the roads example is one of the ones that is is always given to you. So it is clearly not beyond, now clearly it's more complicated building a children's hospital than it is building a bypass. But it is not surely beyond the wit of man to come up with a process, as they have done for the roads, that controls and monitors costs uh, on big public building projects. Because if we don't do that, then you're going to have a small number of these huge projects like the Metro eating up the budget for uh, for everything else. And that would be a big problem, I think.
1: Yeah, Harry, um, we've all, I don't know, I think you have done this as well. Um, I got an extension built in my house uh, a few years ago. It's safe to say that it wasn't an easy experience. In fact, I think it's safe to say that um, ourselves in the, builders did not part on good terms. It's not unusual for those kinds of things to happen. But when I look at the Children's Hospital, and I can't claim to be an expert on the engineering or the architecture, it does look incredibly fancy. Um, and there's all these sorts that's, of complexities. That's a, that's a term of architectural criticism. That is, that is, yeah, yeah. It's, sort of, it's all, it's the all the curved, engineering back, glass and comple- complex. Mm. There seems to be huge complexity in the building, and I just wonder whether there's a kind of a grandiosity. I do remember you mentioned Metro North, and you know there were. I think there a, there's been a hundred million euros spent on that project, which is now gone. Oh down, more, gone, more. gone yeah, down yeah, the toilet. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, and at one point, they, um, they they did all kinds of three D visualizations of what the stations were going to look like. And they were incredibly fancy. It's like the kind of thing you see in Moscow, you know. They didn't quite have chandeliers, but they weren't far off it. And I just wonder, is there something about that The state loses the run of itself with these, with, with these grand projects.
2: Yes, indeed. It comes from the school of incredible fancy uh, children's hospital uh, uh, <laughs> at extravagant cost. I, I did a piece um, several years ago, actually more than several years ago. I'm trying to scroll through my, my emails now to see if I can find it. But I compared the cost uh, 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 then, I think the cost then for the children's hospital was 1.2 or 1.4 billion euros. That was a projection at the particular time. It probably was 2017 or 2018. And I looked at children's hospitals uh, all across Europe that had been recently uh, built. And there was none, maybe one in Scandinavia, that came anywhere near the comparable estimates that we had uh, for the Irish hospital, given its specifications, given its size, and and uh what have you uh, and uh, it did i mean i i think the original uh, uh design was was very fancy just in terms of the way uh the, the hospital would look so um i i think a lot of money went in terms of the aesthetics of it now i think the aesthetics are always very important i don't think you can just start building uh you know big uh ugly uh, uh brutalist blocks but at the same time you know um you, 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 the, those who are behind it have to be conscious that the money is ultimately coming from the public purse and that they do have to have to get value uh, for for money. And I mean, a, a hospital nowadays, of course, is a far more complicated proposition than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago in terms of, you know, the, the I mean, every room for a patient is not just a, a bed and a couple of plugs. I mean, you're talking uh, ab- about something that looks like the, the, the deck of Starship Enterprise uh, and then some because of all the diagnostic equipment, the computers, uh, the the uh, the the different electronics that have to be uh, provided. And then you're talking also about modern diagnostic systems and computer systems, the communication systems, and all of those cost a pretty, pretty penny uh, as well. But the net point is, I mean, when I did that kind of uh, uh, desk, desktop comparison between the projected cost for the Irish hospital as it was then and other hospitals throughout Europe, it seemed that every other country in Europe was getting far greater bang for their buck. Now, the specifications might not have been quite as extensive as they were for the Irish hospital, but at the same time, they weren't building children's hospitals in the Stone Age. They had to put in all of the same elements that we have to put into our children's hospital. And again, it goes back to this this, uh, difficulty that we have in relation to our big public uh, projects. We probably uh, uh, are over-optimistic. We probably over-design and then we probably uh, uh, leave um uh, uh, it, their their completion as, as kind of an open-ended uh, project. They don't seem to have the same kind of level of detail in terms of implementation as we see uh, in other countries. And I mean if you do look in fairness if you do look to other countries you do look at, you look at infrastructural projects that have taken far longer than were than were originally envisaged, you know, and and things happen, there or eventualities that people just can't really foresee. Uh, before they start off and they, they encounter difficulties and all of that. And we all know that. But we just seem to have a particular problem with them in this country. There are very few uh, infrastructure projects that get from beginning to end uh, without encountering some kind of cost escalation or some some kind of uh, hassle. And I'll take Pat's point uh, absolutely. We had huge problems with, with road infrastructure in the 90s when they were building them. They were, they were being delivered very late and at excessive cost. A, a new uh, protocol was introduced, a new regime was introduced uh, that, that began to implement a very uh, tough regime in terms of delivering on time and on budget. And that was remarkably successful and it has remained markedly uh, uh, successful, markedly successful, should I say. And it's a pity that that particular template or that approach hasn't been replicated in terms of other big projects in other sectors.
1: Um, at the end of our podcasts every week on a Friday, we like to pick articles that uh, we would like to recommend to our listeners. And actually, just Pat, uh, the one you picked is a sort of it's sort of related to this. In fact, it's definitely related to this. It's about electric buses.
0: Yeah, that's right. Michael McDool, uh in his in his column on on Wednesday. Uh, I think, was pointing... It's actually a fairly nifty piece of journalism, uh, I thought. He's pointing out the National Transport Authority bought 134 new electric buses in June of last year for use uh, in Dublin. Um, but they're still sitting in storage around the city because the National Transport Authority failed to get planning permission for the charging infrastructure, which would enable them
1: to uh, to actually... Be used. It's um, lucky that planning happens so fast in Ireland, Pat. So presumably this problem has been sorted out by now. I'm afraid it has not, Hugh. No,
0: it has not. And in fact, <laughs> the best estimates are that they will manage to get the buses into service by early 2024. And that will be all the buses. They'll have to be, they'll be introduced um, incrementally.
1: And that's their best estimate. So I think we can maybe bet on their worst estimate. So it'll probably be almost three years. They've been sitting there while all the
0: while depreciating, uh, presumably. And anyone who uses buses regularly in Dublin, I tend not to myself, but will know that the uh, on those occasions that I do, and certainly anecdotally, this service is flaky at
1: best. Indeed, and that's so. That's another symptom of the same thing. Of course, yeah. Michael McDougal knows knows whereof he speaks. I mean, he was the man who, as Minister for Justice, uh, sanctioned the uh, the purchase of a very large plot of land for a prison that never got built in North Dublin. Isn't it great to have that sort of inside knowledge? I'm going to pick um, a piece by, uh, in fact, a European letter, a weekly European letter from uh, Naomi O'Leary based in Brussels. Uh, her her piece is actually about Spain and Spanish politics. There is a there is a general election coming mm, in Spain, one. a very yeah. interesting general election. The way it looks at the moment is that the current uh, socialist government uh, is, seems quite likely to lose, and the most likely political configuration will be the centre-right uh, PP Um perhaps with support from the far-right Vox Party. Swing to the right all over Europe. Well, that is interesting. Yeah. It
0: is. If you look at, you know, a whole bunch of elections uh, that that have, uh, that have happened uh, in the last 12, 18 months or so, and there's a real there's a real swing to the, the right. You see it, you know, recently again in Greece, the kind of, of practical destruction of Syriza. And uh, yep, it's happening. It's happening right across Europe. Sorry, Harry, you were going to say something. Yeah, I
2: was going to say Greece, center right government going into Greece, and and uh, yep. Sweden, g-
0: Sweden, and Finland. Yep.
2: Yeah, uh, and also in Spain, Podemos has has really uh, gone from from being went from nothing to being a kind of a, a, a mega party, and it's kind of quickly uh, careering down the road to becoming very 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 small party again it looks like it looks like it's going to lose even more seats uh, in in the election it's been actually incorporated into a kind of a larger uh, rainbow kind of left uh, movement yeah. at, at present
1: indeed yeah well the, the the point which Naomi was making and i'm sure and our our correspondent guy hedgeco i'm sure will be reporting from the um, from the campaign over the next over the next couple of weeks she was looking at the broader european context because the spanish government currently uh, holds the chair at european council meetings uh, if there's a change of government that would happen before the end of this calendar year you might have a very different approach to some of the very significant and fraught Um, climate mitigation and environmental proposals which have been causing uh, a lot of agro including within the European People's Party which is the big centre right grouping at the European Parliament so arising out of this election in Spain that could have implications in all kinds of ways for European politics and the uh, political agenda because as I understand it the sort of active agenda part of Um, of the EU comes to a grinding halt in an election year and next year is an election year to the European Parliament.
0: Next year is an election year, everybody's concentrating on jobs. Jobs for their leaders, jobs for themselves if they're uh, they're MEPs. Um, That's right, yeah. Uh, And now, you know, the... And of course, the type of governments that you have in member states uh, dictate what... who is... Appointed as their national commissioners, and therefore of what political hue they uh, they have. So, if you have a bunch of centre right governments, you know, all over Europe, then you're going to uh, chancellor. You have a um, uh, you're going to have a centre right uh, European Commission, and that is you know the engine of European lawmaking uh, in in uh, in Brussels. So, yeah, it's interesting. Now, having said that you know you've seen in in, in italy where's where another you know right wing government has been uh, has been elected and there was all sorts of pearl clutching about the uh, the accession of uh george, m- Maloney. george Maloney, the uh, the prime minister there. a so, head of, the leader of the Brothers of Italy party, which we have been kind of seen as almost kind of a post-fascist party. Uh, well, it uh,
1: is. Party. It is yeah. factually a post-fascist party. Mm,
0: but she's actually been pretty much in the kind of European main centre-right mainstream since she's been elected. She hasn't been, you know, the disruptive force on the European Council that lots of people uh, said that she would be. But look, there's no there's no question that Europe is, um, it, it is. I don't know if it's a lurch, to the right, but it's certainly electorally very clearly moved to the right. Again, this, this weak kind of centrist coalition of uh, of Mark Rutte in the Netherlands is, is gone. And he is, he was a great survivor of European uh, politics, been Prime Minister for 10 years, one of the very big figures on the European Council and he has said that he's not, uh, he's not going to run again. So uh, yeah. because so there's a lot,
1: a, lot, a lot going on on the European scene. Harry, you picked a piece from our sports correspondent Maliki Clerken who paid a rare visit to an Oroctus committee this week. Indeed
2: I did. Um, I, I don't know why Pat allowed this or why the gallery allowed this but they actually la- allowed a sports journalist into Leinster House this week and Oh, a church, Harry. I could have warned them, you know, that here, here he comes, Wreck It Ralph. So uh, Maliki went into the uh, into the uh, media committee, media and sports committee. There was a discussion on about GAA go, and um, only as a as a sports journalist can do, he absolutely told it like it was. He didn't spare any of the TDs. He, he was
1: he was not impressed. I think it's fair to say.
2: I can you could you would be quite right in saying that. I will just quote you. Um, one key line from his coverage, but mostly it's donkeys braying. So he... Um, he, he to, be honest, to be
0: honest though, as a political journalist, I often feel the same when I have to watch a Gaelic football match. So.
2: <laughs> yes, but they, they, I don't think they're going to start getting us to report on the semifinals that are happening over the course of the weekend as yet. But anyways, he was, it's a very good piece and it's very funny. He says that most of it ended up being devolving into parish pump nonsense about the poor old fella sitting on the side of a mountain asking why Kerry aren't on TV or while somebody from RTE made a smart remark about the state of a ground in RD, or can GAA Go be made free to all over 65s like the free public transport is at the moment? And he was making fair points. I think there was a lot of grandstanding about GAA uh, Go. For my top worth, I think GAA Go is exceptionally good value. The package they offered for the entire year was unbeatable in terms of value. Perhaps the single individual fee for a game of €12 Euro was a little bit too high and can be tweaked. But I think in its generality, I think that GAA Go is a very good idea and I've really enjoyed Diego. it's been a, a big addition uh, to my own life in this year so that's my thought as uh, for today as we depart uh, this political uh, podcast
1: I think um I know you're fond of hot air Pat I think most of the hot air has been ex- expended about your f- favourite sport hurling and a couple of key games that, that weren't free to air uh,
0: yeah um, the, and and uh, and some of the hot air might even have been emanating from myself I mean to be honest it's impossible for RT to put on all the games and the championship is so stupidly compressed uh, nowadays you know that uh, that there's simply too many games going on at the one time for them uh, for them to be all free to air and and, and so I can I can't see the benefit of, uh, of a streaming service I think the difficulty though uh, that a lot of people have encountered with it is that you know not everybody in the GEA audience is as tech savvy as uh, as Harry and I are and um and I suspect an awful lot of the GEA go uh, potential audience was having to get their uh, grandchildren to organize setting up the uh, the service and putting it on their uh, on, on their television and that is they're a very important part of the GEA's audience. They're people that have been going to matches all their lives, bringing their kids to matches and now going to see where their grandchildren play. And um, and I, I, I think that they were possibly a little bit forgotten in in the or in, in, in the GAA's calculations on all
1: this. Yeah, for my own part is I think in in many ways this just encapsulates a lot of the stuff we were talking about at the start that RT is damned if it does and damned if it doesn't, that it has to enter into commercial arrangements because it's partly funded commercially and then it gets kicked in the head because it's seen not to be meeting somebody's definition of what public service can mean, which is which is pretty broad. We are going to leave it there for today. Thanks very much to Pat and thanks to Harry for joining us. Thanks to our producer Declan Conlon and our engineer JJ Vernon. We'll be back very soon indeed after the weekend but until then, try and keep dry. Goodbye.